It's a privilege to teach scripture in our local public schools. And as I teach kids scripture in the local schools, one of the things uh, that they often say to me is, this doesn't make sense. And maybe it's just because I'm a bad teacher. But one of the things I think that's going on in their minds is they can't conceive of God. See, one of the things I say to them is that to qualify to be God, you have to be bigger than the human mind. If you believe in a God that is just easy to understand and inside the human mind, well, he doesn't qualify to be God. God must be bigger than us. For him to be the creator and redeemer and sustainer of all life, he's got to be bigger than what's in our own minds. And so he is. And yet, even though God is bigger than our own human minds, this does not mean that God is unknowable. This is what's amazing about what the Bible teaches us. God revealing himself to us in the pages of the scriptures. On our own, God would be an unknowable God. But thanks to his amazing revelation, we can know who he is. We can study him. And we can find out from the pages of the scriptures what it means that God might be Trinity. That God might have come to us in the incarnation of Jesus. Or the doctrine that we'll see today, the providence of God. For the most part, one of the most difficult doctrines or ways of thinking for the Christian person that is hard to understand is the providence of God. Put simply, the providence of God is this. Nothing is outside the directing hand of God. Now that's hard to understand, isn't it? Where does that leave us? What does that mean for us in my experience in life and in the world? How does it look like God is in charge directing the things in my life or the history of the world? And, and it raises lots of questions for us. I know as a minister of the gospel, as a pastor of people, I find these questions come up over and over again. What is God doing? Why is he doing it this way? And in many ways, one of the best answers to these questions of providence and what God is doing are in these chapters. The chapters of the life of Joseph, the real life example that God gives of his own providence in the life of Joseph. And so this morning, we're going to look at chapters 42 through to 45 of Genesis. We're going to skate over some of the details, so stick with me as we do so. And we're going to see the big question of what is God doing in his providential care for his people. But you might have questions. Remember, slido.com is a place to go. Hashtag is HBSP. I'll answer a couple of questions at the end. And there's a few funny bits here. You're allowed to have a laugh at the Bible on the way through. Uh, there's a few funny, funny phrases, I think, that I'll show you on the way through as well. Let's pray, and we'll dive into these four chapters together. Heavenly Father, be with us this morning as we consider this act of your character, your providence in our lives and in the life of Joseph. And we ask please that you'd help us this morning in whatever is going on in our uh, long weekend to give us the uh, energy to focus on you uh, and the heart to focus on what you're saying to us. Please be with us. Prevent us from being distracted today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I don't know if it's just you, but I long for the good old days. Uh, not the good old days of music like Matt talked about, but the good old days when people would fight over toilet paper in the shops. <laughs> you miss those days? I miss them so much. The nostalgia. It's actually interesting, isn't it? Since, since then, it feels like every now and then there's a shortage of something in the shops. You know, there's a shortage of lettuces. You can't get those unless you want to pay $27.50. Or there's a shortage of eggs. 
Or there's a shortage of uh, potato chips that you put in the air fryer that you bought last week that you can't use because there's no potato chips. There's just always a shortage of something. And it seems so annoying. Or if you go to Helensburg Coles, there's a shortage of everything because there's nothing there, but that's a different story. Uh, here's the thing though. Even when there's a shortage of all of these things, we've still got plenty of food. You can still rely on spam to fill a hole if you want to. If you want to. But imagine a full-scale, proper, legitimate famine. It's hard, to, hard for us to imagine, isn't it, what that might be like. Well, as we pick up in chapter 42, we're told that we're two years into a severe famine. The severe famine we heard about last week that would last for seven years, and we're two years in. And in chapter 42, verse 1, this is the first bit you're allowed to have a laugh at. Look at what it says there. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt... He said to his sons, why do you just look at one another? Don't just stand there looking at each other. He could have made a good Aussie, couldn't he, Jacob? What are you doing just standing there looking at each other? Go and do something, you clowns. This is what he's saying. There's grain down there. You know it's there and you're standing right here. What are you doing? Get on with it. And so they do. They leave for Egypt. The brothers together. Well, almost the brothers together. They leave without the youngest brother, Benjamin. You might remember Jacob has 12 sons to four different women. But out of those four women, he had one favourite wife, Rachel. And from that wife, he had two favourite children, Joseph and Benjamin. And Joseph is at this point assumed to be dead. This is what the brothers framed uh, uh, many chapters before in chapter 37. And so will Benjamin take this trip down to Egypt, possibly a dangerous one? Well, I don't think Jacob said this, but I think he was thinking it. There's not a snowflake's chance in hell I'm sending that kid down there with them. It's gone bad once before, and I'm not going to let him out of my sight again. And so in verse 6, we're told that they get to Egypt. The other brothers... And they find Joseph there, although they don't know that it's him. Verse 6, now Joseph was governor over all the land. He was the one who sold to, the, to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. What did they do? They bowed themselves before him. Remember the dreams of chapter 37. You brothers will bow before me, Joseph says, and they say, not a chance. We hate you all the more for saying so. But they don't just bow here. They bow again in chapter 43, verse 26, and again in chapter 43, verse 28. These dreams that Joseph got were from God, though he didn't know it at the time. A prophetic future about what would take place as his brothers bow before him. And right here we see for the first time in this passage the providence of God showing up. You see, we might put it this way. God doesn't play catch up to what we're doing as human beings. Sometimes we think about it this way, don't we? We think uh, God's up there in heaven and he's looking down at us and he's thinking, gee, I hope that they go in this direction. Uh, and if they don't, I'm just kind of going to knock them back until they make the decision that I'm hoping they make. And in that way, we see God as a reactive God. I make a decision, God reacts to it. But this is not what the Bible teaches. 
So what is God like? Is he a proactive God? What's a proactive God going to look like? Well, you might say that if you're a proactive person, you plan out the steps beforehand. But even then, you hope that things go in a particular way. There's no guards or controls that it will go in a particular way. You see, God is neither reactive nor proactive. He is sovereign. That's a completely and totally different category. Occasionally, and particularly when we go on holidays, we'll play board games as a family. And I don't mind doing that. It's quite, quite fun to play board games as a family. But the members of our family play differently. I tend to play 15 steps in advance, which doesn't always go well for me, it must be said. But I like to plan my steps out. And so I, I might go around the table and I'm a bit bored because I've got my steps planned out. It doesn't matter what anybody else does. I'm playing my game my way and too bad if it doesn't work or it does work. But other members of the family do things differently. They're very reactive. So when it comes around to their turn in the board game, uh, they need to do all their thinking in that moment. And their turn seems to take 42 hours to happen because they're thinking at the moment and it drives me nuts. But I'm not saying one's better than another. But there are the two different styles. A reactive style and a proactive style. But if God were playing the board game, it wouldn't even be a game. Because he's playing a different game. There is no one like God. He does not play catch-up. He does not play in advance. He's not reactive or proactive. He's sovereign. Now, I, I understand that in this it raises all sorts of questions for us. And we can ask those questions, and so we should. And you might like to ask a couple later. But I want to press in just at this moment to remind us that this particular doctrine, this particular way of thinking is to actually comfort us. Because God is not a random God. Things don't happen in your life in random ways. God is a loving and generous and saving God. He's a just God. And this doctrine is, is designed by God to draw comfort. Knowing that God is behind the wheel in all that he's doing. Bringing about his plans and purposes for our benefit. And most of all for his glory. Now sometimes when things are hard in our life. We look at the sovereignty of God and we wonder what could possibly be going on in the work of God at that time. And that's fair enough. But these verses and this whole chapter teaches us about the plans and purposes and promises of God, which are unbreakable. And he always works for his own glory. Well, Joseph sees his brothers and his brothers bow down to him. They don't recognise that this is their uh, younger brother. And so how is Joseph going to react when he sees his brothers for the first time in 17 years? Well, he treats them harshly. He accuses them as, of being spies and whacks them in an Egyptian jail for three days. And during this whole process, he learns much about them and about the family. He realises the younger brother, Benjamin, his younger brother from his mother, is still alive. And at home with his dad, who is still alive. But they learn that the brothers have brought about a, a way of talking about him. The brothers say, there is another brother amongst us, but he is no more. No more. Well, Joseph says to them, look, after three days, I will let you out of jail, if you will do this for me. You must bring your youngest brother back to me. 
and leave one of your brothers here in jail. Look at verse 21 of chapter 42. And they turn to each other, they say to one another, you can imagine the whispers that are going on at this moment. In truth, we're guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben, the firstborn of all of the brothers, answered them. And he said, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you didn't listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. And they did not know that Joseph understood them. For there was an interpreter between them. The brothers are beginning to unravel. Many years of guilt have finally come to the surface. And in this guilt, we see God at work in them throughout these chapters, showing them their own sin. And from here, we see Joseph set up a series of tests. Now, we're not exactly sure whether he was pure in heart in setting up the tests or whether he was vengeful in setting up the tests. And Joseph, throughout these chapters, for the moment, seems to be harsh with them and then he seems to be loving towards them and we're not quite sure which is which and maybe he's just human at that level. But God uses them to bear out their guilt and to bring them to repentance. So what's the first test? Well, Joseph's already set it up. Will you brothers abandon Simeon who will stay in this jail while you head back home? That's what you did to me, Joseph's thinking in his mind. You abandon me, will you abandon him too? Have you changed? Have things been different? And so with Simeon in the jail, Joseph sends all of the brothers back once again to their father in Canaan. They're sent home with grain in their sacks, but little do they know that they've also got the money in their sacks as well. For all intents and purposes, it looks as though they haven't paid the bill. Have you ever been like that? You've driven up to the service station, you put the fuel in the car, and then you've just jumped in the car and driven off? No? No one's ever done that? <laughs> Neither have I. <laughs> it's a horrible feeling, though, if you've walked away without paying for something. Whatever it might be. Oh, no, I haven't paid. I've done the wrong thing. And the guilt comes upon you. And, and the brothers are travelling at night. Finally, they stop for the evening. And they stop to feed their animals. And they realise, uh-oh, money is still in the sack. And then they all check, and it's not just one that has the money in the sack, it's all of them. And here comes test number two. Will they betray their brother for money? Think about this for a minute. They can go home with all of their food and with all of their money. They can pocket all of their money, maybe not even tell dad. And be rich as a result. This is what they did. Some many years earlier with Joseph, selling him for 20 pieces of silver. But again, here we see the brothers start to express their guilt. And for the first time, they invoke the name of God. What has God done to us, they say in verse 28. They see their guilty conscience as God punishing them. But here, God is making them face up to what they've done. And sometimes life can be the same like that for us, can't it? The guilt that we feel can help us to face up to the sin that we've committed. This is not God punishing us, but God pushing us towards repentance. 
Because the good news about what Jesus has done for each one of us is that we don't need to live in that guilt any longer. As the guilt pushes us towards repenting of our sin, changing our ways, we can be sure and certain of the forgiveness and healing that come in Jesus. This is not cheap grace. But to understand that our guilt is to lead us towards repentance. And once we have repented, once we have been forgiven by the Lord Jesus for what it is that we've done, then we can give up that guilt. We can give up that horrible feeling that comes upon us when we know that we've done wrong, we've done evil. Because Jesus has fully and freely forgiven us at the cross for what we have done. Nevertheless, when you feel that sense of guilt, understand that it can easily be a God-given instrument to push you towards that repentance that we so often need to do. But when we do, be reminded of the full and free forgiveness in Jesus Christ. So these brothers, they feel the guilt. What have we done? What is this that God has done to us? Well, when they finally arrive home, they give the report to Dad. Dad probably counts up the brothers and thinks, everyone's not here. What's going on? And they don't really tell Dad the whole story, do they? We won't go over the story again, but look at it later. They don't tell him the whole story. They just give him half a story. And they say, if we want to go back and get Simeon, we've got to bring Benjamin with us. Well, Reuben, the firstborn child, is once again not glorious in his supposed leadership here. Not only in chapters gone by did he sleep with his stepmom to try and gain leadership over the family. He blames his brothers for what has gone on, even though he was complicit in it all. And here in these verses, he offers the lives of his own children to make sure that Benjamin would be kept safe. We'll take Benjamin back, and I promise you he'll come back. You can kill my two sons if he doesn't. It's not much of a deal, is it? Well, this is what Reuben says, and Jacob says, No, you're not going, and I'm not sending Benjamin. It's just not happening. And here we see Jacob basically sacrifice one of his sons for one of the others. We've said this is a messed up family, haven't we, all the way through this series, and here we see it again. I'm not sending Benjamin... Simeon can stay in Jacob. And we see what this means to Jacob in verse 38. Look at verse 38. Even though he describes Simeon as one of his children in verse 36, look at how he describes it in verse 38. But he said, My son, that's Benjamin, shall not go down with you, for his brother, that's Joseph, is dead, and he is the only one left. No, he's not. He's got heaps more kids. But he's the only one left. In his mind, he's only got two children. The rest are hangers-on. So he says, if harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my grey hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Ever heard of helicopter parenting? It's a funny little phrase, isn't it? Where the child will not be out of the sight of the parent at any time. The parent literally helicopters over the top of the child in everything that they have done. They won't let anything happen to that child. They'll ban certain friends. They'll ban content on TV at inappropriate times. 
There's stories around about uh, adult children being accompanied to their own psychologist with their parents. But it was perhaps this story that got my attention uh, through the week as I prepared this. An employer said this, I had a mother call me and ask, ask me why her son didn't get the job. Imagine having your mum ring up and say, why didn't my son get the job? And then realise that he was 40 and a lawyer. And it gets worse. This is helicopter parenting at its worst, but Benjamin was likely in his late 20s or early 30s here. And Dad has fully got control of the social calendar, doesn't he? Late 20s, early 30s, Dad's completely in control. You're not going there, Benjamin. It's definitely not happening. I would rather sacrifice one of my other sons so that I can have my favourite son with me. Until chapter 43 comes about. They've gone through that initial portion of food and once again there's no food anymore. And they've got to face up and head down to Egypt once again. And it's Judah this time who speaks up. And he says, if we don't, if we, if we want food, we've got to take Benjamin with us. And he makes an impassioned speech. And finally, Jacob says, okay, you can. You can take this youngest brother of yours, but take with you a huge gift and two times the money so we're clear that we haven't stolen anything from them and apologize profusely. And so they go down to Egypt. And Joseph once again deals with them roughly and brings them to his house. Look at verse 17 of chapter 43. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, imagine the whispered tones, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks for the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. You're allowed to laugh there. Who would think that the second in charge of all of Egypt would be interested in ten donkeys? Who cares? They're ten donkeys. We're not interested in the donkeys. Nobody wants the donkeys. So verse 19. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh my Lord, we've come down for the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Our money in full weight. So we've brought it again with us. And we brought other money down with us to buy food. We don't know who put the money in our sacks. And he replied, Peace to you, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Well, they've passed the test, haven't they? Even though the father, Jacob, may not have passed the test, Jacob was happy to abandon Simeon. But the brothers, not so. Neither were they happy to take the money in and, and, and abandon and sell off the brother for money. But what about the next test? The test of favouritism. Joseph's about to set up an, another test for his brothers. Remember in chapter 37, Joseph was favoured by his father and the rest of the brothers reacted badly to this. And so Joseph tries to recreate this situation. He says that we're going to have a big meal and you are going to be the guests of honour. So he sits all the brothers down and look at what happens. Verse 32. Chapter 43, verse 32. They served him by himself and then by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for this is an abomination to the Egyptians. 
And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. So they sit them down, not knowing that this is Joseph, not knowing that this is his brother, not knowing that they were known to him in age order. Imagine how hard that would be to get together. Imagine if we got a bunch of adults, 10 adults here in the, in the room today and we tried to sit you down in age order, you might find it offensive. <laughs> but it would be hard work. It wouldn't be immediately easy to do. So they look at each other in amazement. What's doing? And then not only that, Benjamin gets five times as much food as everyone else. As our kids have got older, we just serve four, five portions in our family of exactly the same food now. It's a piece of meat and a bunch of other stuff on the plate. We say, dinner's ready and everybody comes in. Maybe our family's like yours, but the plates will get studied for a little while <laughs> before they get picked up. What has the least amount of vegetables? What has the most amount of the good stuff? Whatever the good stuff is that day. And there might be like one, one potato chip more on that plate than another one. Oh, I'm having that one. They pick it up and they go to the table and do it that way. You've got to have the best portion. And if you get a bigger portion than somebody else, well, there might be hell to pay. I don't know if it's like that in your family, but we like to take what's best of the portions on the table. And if one person was getting five times as much of the good stuff as somebody else, there'd be a stink on for sure. And so it was here. But how would they react to the favouritism? Well, it's clear at the end. There was full camaraderie at the meal. Have they changed? Well, as time goes on, we see the brothers have changed more and more. And so what about this final test? After a great meal, the next day, once again, they're sent away with grain in their sacks. But Benjamin has hidden in his sack the diviner's cup. This cup would have been used in Egypt to, uh, to conduct uh, so-called magic or to find out what the dreams of people would have been. This cup was deliberately placed by Joseph into the, into the bag of his younger brother Benjamin to set him up as another dreamer. Dreamer Mark II, just like he was in Genesis chapter 37. And the brothers are once again sent on their way, but this time someone is sent after them to chase them down. There's a cup missing. Who stole the cup? And they all look at each other and they say, well, it wasn't me, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. And in, in fact, they're so sure that nobody stole the cup, they stand up and say, whoever stole the cup should be killed. Then they look through the bags and of course it's Benjamin. Benjamin should be killed. Well, on this occasion, in chapter 43, Judah the true leader of the twelve steps up. And in chapter 43, verse 9, chapter 43, verse 9, he had already said, I will be a pledge of his safety. Reuben had said his two children would be a pledge of his safety. Of his safety. But here Judah puts himself on the line. I pledge that it will be me that will be a pledge of his safety. Now remember Judah, the last time he made a pledge was in chapter 38. 
The pledge he made to the prostitute he did not know at the time. The pledge of all of his identification markers. And now he has changed so much. The pledge that he makes is not his own children, but his own self. And in chapter 44, verse 33, he says this. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy Benjamin as a servant to my Lord Joseph. And let the boy go back to his brothers, with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that that would find my father. See, since chapter 38, Judah has been completely transformed by the repentance that he showed in that chapter. He's completely changed. Now he is to be a servant rather than being served himself. His self-interest is pushed aside for the interest of others. He knows the situation at home. He knows he's not the same sort of brother as Benjamin. He knows that his dad thinks he's only got two real children and the rest are hangers-on. Nevertheless, he will put aside his own self-interest in order to highlight the interests of others. And in this we see, don't we, true leadership. In this we see what Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, would be like as he would put aside his self-interest and lay down his life for the good of us. And you see, as our lives go on day by day and week by week and year by year and as our lives are marked by repentance more and more, we ought to see our lives changing more in the image of Judah and in the image of the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus himself. Would you be able to say that your own life is less self-interested than it was a week ago, a month ago, year ago or are you digging in deeper to your self-interest more and more as time goes on because the hallmark of a repentant life is to push aside self-interest and to bring on the interest of others well having passed all the tests joseph finally reveals himself chapter 45 verse 1 then Joseph could not control himself before those, all those who understood him. He cried, make everyone go out from before me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of the Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. For they were dismayed at his presence. They don't understand it. They can't put the dots together. You can feel the emotion, but they don't really get it. And he says in the rest of the remaining verses in this chapter, go back home and get Dad and bring him down here. So that's what he does. He sends them away. Look at chapter 45, verse 24. Then he sent his brothers away. And as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. He knows them well, doesn't he? Don't fight on the way. You can imagine what the fight would be like. I'm not telling Dad. No, you can tell him. What about the coat with all the blood on it? Yeah, yeah, you made up that story. You can tell him yourself. He knows what's going to happen. They're going to fight on the way home. Don't fight on the way home. And so he sends them back. But it's one small detail that I want you to see in the middle of this chapter that brings the chapter to its climax. Look at chapter 45 and verse 15. 
he kissed all his brothers after explaining everything and wept upon them. What a great showing of emotion. And after that, his brothers talked with him. I don't know about you, but that last sentence seems out of place. He cried a lot, and then he had a chat. Who cares about the chat? Of course he would talk, going to talk to them. What is this all about? Well, this is actually the central chapter, the central uh, sentence, should I say, in this whole narrative. Because it's showing us, not an anticlimax, but a reversal of everything. Remember chapter 37, verse 4? The brothers hated him so much that they could not even speak with him. And now, after all of the tests and all of the guilt, now they can speak together. It's a reversal. It's a reconciliation. It's a restoration because of the repentance that has come about. God is a God who forgives, but he always forgives with restored relationship inside. This is what God does for us. He doesn't just forgive our sins, but brings us back into right relationship with our Heavenly Father. Which brings us to the final verses in chapter 45 I want to share with you this morning and back to our first point. Look at verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will neither be ploughing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep you alive, uh, keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all of his house and ruler over all of the land of Egypt. Joseph recognises in the midst of his hardship and suffering and not living his best life now, he's learned the character of godliness. He's learned what we might call learning Christ. He doesn't let his brothers off the hook. You did evil. But he says God is in it all. All that's happened was from God. God was doing it to bring about his purposes, his plans and his promises. And this is not just a theological word to them from a theological boffin. But it said to comfort his brothers and their troubled souls. And you and I need to know that we stand in the line of Joseph. Because of the cross, we know God doesn't play catch-up. He's not even proactive, hoping things go well. He is sovereign over all. And he uses everything, even the evil in this world, to bring about his glory. And so whatever's happened in your life in the past, in the present, or in the future, know this, whether you're the victim or the perpetrator, sinned or sinned against, whether you've done evil or been the recipient of evil, God can work through all of these things. God is not out of control of the details of your life. In fact, he can use them to bring about his very great promises. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see as Joseph is reunited with his father, how his own faith has been grown through this time. And we're going to see how we should continue to grow in faith in the God of providence as well. 
Well, I'm going to leave a couple of minutes just for you to ask a question or two. There's lots in those four chapters, uh, and we've skated over a lot. So let's spend 90 seconds or so reflecting. If you don't want to ask a question, that's fine. Uh, but uh, please reflect on the things that have been said, and we'll bring it back in about 90 seconds' time. Let's um, just have a look. There's just the one question at this stage. If there's another one coming through and you're working on it, please send it through. Uh, we'll try to get to that one as well. Uh, it just says this, when bad things happen in life, is that God testing us? We saw Joseph was uh, testing his brothers uh, in all the same ways that they were tested before. Um, and they, they seem to say that, don't they? The brothers, what is this that God has done to us? I think there's an interesting thing here for us in, in the way we deal with uh, sin and consequences and forgiveness in all of that. So uh, just thinking about our own sin, when we sin, um, hopefully God is working in us to uh, bring about godly guilt from that. So when we sin, we, we want to feel guilty about it. We want to feel like uh, we've done the wrong thing. Uh, that's actually a good thing. When we push that guilt down over and over and over again, we harden our conscience to what God is actually trying to do in our life. So that's really important. Uh, but that sin uh, is against God. And when we confess that sin, God is always ready to forgive and restore us because of what Jesus has done. That's the good news, isn't it? That's the good news. But uh, in an earthly sense, um, the sin that we commit may have uh, a range of consequences attached to it. And those things uh, may never go away. So in this particular family situation, uh, there are all sorts of relational problems that are probably going to happen in this family as a result. You know, don't fight on the way home is just one of them uh, that we see in this passage. But uh, there would have been you know, mistrust issues and all sorts of things going on in this family uh, as time goes on. So those consequences aren't eroded, even though the forgiveness uh, can happen. I think, it's, I think it's true in our lives as well. So when bad things happen, uh, it's not necessarily God testing us, but, um, but, uh, but perhaps... Uh, the, the long-term consequences of sin and in some ways we should uh, use the guilt to repent rather than uh, festering in it and wondering what God is doing pushing us to repent and then leaving the guilt behind knowing that God will always forgive us uh, I'm going to pray and then we will uh, sing our final song together Heavenly Father we thank you uh, for your providential care over us and over all of history and we recognise that this is a, a hard thing for us to understand. Nevertheless, we ask, please, that you continue to teach us by the example of the life of Joseph and give to us a trust that we might put uh, our trust in you, uh, recognising your providential care over our own lives as well. And we thank you uh, so much that in, uh, in Jesus 
Uh, you have given to us uh, all that we need uh, for life and godliness. And though that doesn't always answer all of our questions, we ask, please, that you might help us to trust him, uh, for that's what you've called us to do. Please uh, help us this week in, uh, in every way to put our trust in the Lord Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen. We're going to sing our final song. It's a, a great song.